evidence and answers. Most Old Testament scholars and archaeologists believe that the early books of the Old Testament are folklore and unhistorical. These scholars believe that there is little historical evidence for biblical accounts such as the Tower of Babel, the Exodus, Sodom and Gomorrah, Joshua's conquest of Canaan, and other biblical accounts in the early books of the Old Testament. Is there historical evidence for these early books of the Old Testament? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. At a recent conference hosted by the Wailai Baptist Church in Hawaii, Pat presented some remarkable discoveries that build a strong case for the historical reliability of the Old Testament. Now with part one of session five is our host, Pat. Here's our final session on archaeology and the Old Testament. Now, as I stated earlier, the most disputed part when it comes to the Old Testament is everything prior to King Ahab. All right, so we're going to look, try to look at and focus on archaeology prior to King Ahab because many archaeologists and Old Testament scholars believe the history of Israel begins from Ahab and after because Archaeologists were saying, we don't have any archaeology or archaeological evidence for the Old Testament prior to Ahab, King Ahab. So really, many think Omri and King Ahab are the first kings of Israel, all right? And the Pentateuch and everything is developed from all the folklore that they gathered, developed after that, about the 8th century BC, all right? So we're going to look at, we're going to, although there's hundreds of archaeological discoveries confirming Old Testament accounts, people, places, and events, we're going to try to focus on the archaeology prior to that, all right? King David, Solomon, and before. We're going to look at that archaeology and see what we have. Now, the Bible claims to be a historical book, claims to record the history of God and his activity upon the earth. And if that's the case, there should be traces of his footprints in the sand throughout the Levant and the Middle East. And indeed, that's what we have. Randall Price writes in his book, The Stones and the Scriptures, over 100,000 discoveries. They confirm people, places, and events of the Bible. That's significant. Compare that to something like the Book of Mormon. That says there were hundreds of cities, the caliber of Babylon and Egypt, all across the United States. During the children of Israel, there's one wave that came, I believe during the time of Babel, migrated over to the United States, and then at the fall of Israel, 586 BC, came over and established these great cities throughout the Middle East, just like we had in the Middle East. How much archaeology do we have confirming the historical, all these cities of the Book of Mormon? How much do we have? Zero. Notice when you open up your Bible, most of you have maps, right? You got maps in there showing you where these cities are, in fact, you can take a tour and go to Bethlehem and Shechem and Megiddo and all of these cities mentioned in the Bible. When you open up the Book of Mormon, do you have a map in there showing you where all these great cities are? You don't. You don't have a map. Okay? How much archaeology do we have to support the story of Muhammad in the Quran? Zero, right? As I stated the other night, if you go to Mecca, which is supposedly the oldest city in the entire world, because when Adam and Eve were ousted from the Garden of Eden, which is in heaven. They landed in Mecca and established great civilization there. How much do we have? Nothing in Mecca. 
It's a modern city when you go there. All right, it's just completely cemented over with modern houses and condos all over the place. When you go to Jerusalem, there's yellow tape everywhere. You can't go anywhere in Jerusalem without running into a historical dig. You don't have that in Mecca. All right, that's, that's the oldest city in the world. You should have hundreds of archaeological discoveries all over the place in Mecca. All right, you don't have that. In the Bible, you got something very significant. Thousands of discoveries, historical, archaeological discoveries, confirming people, places, and events of the Bible. No other book that is so ancient that has so much historical support for its historical integrity. Hey, it's just truly amazing. And we continue to find more and more and more and more and more. Like I said in the first seminar, we've only discovered 10% of what's there. 80 to 90% is yet to be discovered, yet we have so much. We've got more evidence for the historical integrity of the Bible than any other historical book, ancient historical book that's out there. It's just truly amazing. So all this information and more that we talked about this weekend, you can get on our website there at Evidence and Answers, podcasts and articles as well. Not only from me, but some of the top experts in this field. In fact, I have an interview there with Dr. Edwin Yamauchi. He is the top Middle Eastern scholar of our time. Yamauchi, where is he from? Graduate of Iolani High School. Hey, so one of the greatest Middle Eastern archaeologists is a graduate here from Iolani High School, native of Hawaii. Okay? Great interview with him there on that site. All right, well, let's take a look at a few. This is the Sumerian creation account called the Enuma Elish. This dated about 1750 BC. This is the old Babylonian and Assyrian creation account. Okay, it's written in Akkadian. Akkadian is the lingua franca. It's the universal language back during the Middle Bronze Age of the Middle East. So you want to do trade, just like today, if you want to trade internationally, you have to know English. Back then, if you want to do trade, you got to know Akkadian. Okay, that's the lingua franca of that time. And Akkadian means when on high. It's discovered in Nineveh in uh, Assyria. Seven tablets were published in 1876 by archaeologist George Smith. There's two versions of this creation story, the Egyptian version and the Mesopotamian version, right? And the story of the Enuma Elish goes something like this, okay? In this epic, teaches that Absu, the god of the abyss, and Tiamat, the mother of all creation, they give birth to a generation of younger gods. The younger gods begin to start fighting with one another. And the older gods decide, you know what, these younger gods are making too much noise here. You know, Udusai. So they say, you know what, let's just kill them all. Let's wipe them out, man. We're sorry we made these guys. They're making too much noise here. Well, Marduk, one of the younger gods, Marduk becomes the god of Babylon. Okay, in the Old Testament, you see that the Babylonians worship Marduk. He's the god of Babylon. He arose among the younger gods to become their leader and their champion. And he fights a battle with Absu and kills Absu and Tiamat. He shoots an arrow in her belly. Here's the picture right here. Shoots an arrow in the belly of Tiamat and blows her up to smithereens. Then he creates the universe out of the blown up pieces of Tiamat. Then... Another younger god, Kingu, the son of Tiamat, wants to get revenge on Marduk for killing 
his mother. And so he leads a rebellion of these younger gods against Marduk and his allies. And Marduk slays Kingu there, the son of Tiamat. And from the blood of Kingu, he creates the human race. Now, why does he create the human race? He, he creates them from the blood of the slain god and the clay of the earth. Now, why does he create mankind? Because the gods don't want to do the work okay, of planting and harvesting and making buildings and all these kinds. They don't want to do that. So they need a, a slave race to create. And so they create the humans to do the work that the gods don't want to do. Digging canals, making statues and temples in honor of the gods, and so on and so forth. Okay, And that's the Enuma Elish. All right? That's an, one of the oldest creation accounts. Now, scholars look at that and say, wait a minute, there's a lot of similarities here with the Old Testament. You know, a creator of all things. We have the creator who brings order out of the chaos. Creator who battles the darkness, representing the waters of the deep. The natural elements that are named are the same as Genesis. Water, firmament, land, sun, moon, stars, humans, and all of that. How come we got some similarities here? Hmm, very interesting. So what liberals are saying is, you see, you know where Moses got, or the JEPD scholar, you know where they got their idea for the Genesis 1 and 2 creation account? You know where they got it? They got it from the Enuma Elish and all these ancient accounts. That's where they got it from. Well, what accounts for these similarities? Well, one of the things that these critical scholars overlook in their anxiousness, all right, to tell us where the Genesis account comes from, they overlook the very significant differences between the Enuma Elish and the Genesis account. They do everything they can to tell us about the similarities, but not the significant differences here. And if the creation account is true, that tradition was passed down throughout Mesopotamia and different groups who are writing about this similar creation account, these civilizations, probably we would expect them to reinterpret it according to their religion or worldview. But here are some very significant differences which shows you Moses probably didn't rely on things like the Enuma Elish to write the Genesis creation account. In Genesis, there's one God, creator of all things. Whereas in the Middle Eastern literature, like the Enuma Elish, there are many gods. Okay? In the Genesis account, we have one loving God who creates out of love, while in the Enuma Elish, it depicts vengeful gods seeking ill of the other gods. And they create man to serve them, to do the work they don't want to do. In the Enuma Elish, creation was made out of something evil, Tiamat's body and pre-existing matter that's already there from eternity past. Whereas in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Hebrew word for create there is bara. Out of nothing, God creates the universe. Not out of matter that is there, out of nothing. God creates the universe. That's the Hebrew word bara there. In the Enuma Elish, humans are made from the blood of a rebel god and are slaves to serve and feed the gods. While in the Bible, humans are the pinnacle of God's creation, created in the very image of God. 
designed to have a love relationship with God and be the vice regents, ruler, okay, the stewards over God's creation. And the direction is all wrong, all right? In, in ancient literature, historical events, as they are passed down, become more mythical over time, all right? Usually, if you have a historical account, it's quite simple, and it kind of matches reality. You don't see myths becoming more historical. They start off simpler and believable, right? And then they develop more legendary aspects to it. You don't see myths going in the other direction. They're very legendary, mythical, and they become more simpler and historical. You never see that pattern. So the direction is wrong. The Genesis account has the flavor of historical writing. It's more simple. It's more natural. It's more believable than these myths or legends you have in the Middle East. The direction is wrong. And the early creation myths are not about creation, but exalting their gods, and it highlights their gods. And in the Enuma Elish, the emphasis is on Marduk, the god of the Babylonians, and why he is the supreme god that the Babylonians worship. Whereas in the Genesis account, God already exists from eternity past, and it talks about how God created the universe out of nothing. Okay? So we got some very significant differences. Next one we have is the Gilgamesh epic. This is an ancient story discovered about, dated about 2600 BC from the Sumerian tradition. We have the Gilgamesh epic and stories like it throughout the Middle East. This fragment that you see here was discovered in Megiddo in 1950. Okay? But there are several tablets like this discovered throughout the Middle East. The Gilgamesh epic is famous because this is a Mesopotamian story that has a worldwide flood account. So it's a flood account dated about 2600 before Moses wrote the Genesis account. This is one of the most ancient flood accounts, you know, written down in written form that we have discovered. Fragments were found all over, Assyria, Babylonia, in Hittite territories. Now, this is the story of the Gilgamesh epic. Gilgamesh is a human being, but he's a troublemaker. All right, he's arrogant, he's ruthless, and he's a womanizer. So the gods create another human named Ekindu as a rival to Gilgamesh. And Ekindu is not a sophisticated person. He lives in the wild. All right, but they make him to thwart the plans of Gilgamesh. And eventually, these two meet each other, and they wrestle in battle. And Gilgamesh defeats Ekindu. But in the process, the two become friends. And the gods get angry about that. And the goddess Ishtar makes advances upon Gilgamesh. And he rejects the goddess of Ishtar. And she's absolutely enraged. And so she inflicts Ekindu, all right, Gilgamesh's friend, with a mortal illness. And then Ekindu dies. Well, Gilgamesh here is in fear of his own death. So he seeks out immortality. And he travels to find a guy named Utnapishtim. Okay? Utnapishtim. All right? Great name to name your son. Because this guy attained immortality. And he asks Utnapishtim, how can I also attain immortality as you? And Utnapishtim tells him the story about how he did it. 
And he said, this is how I did it. Okay? So the story begins, the gods sought to destroy the earth. Okay? Because of the, they were irritated with the wickedness of men. But one man, Utnapishtim, ruled as king and high priest over the land. And the gods told him, abandon everything. Tear down your massive house and build a great ship. Because we're going to flood the earth and kill everything. Okay, so he's ordered to take the seed of all living things on the ship with him. And the gods sent thunderous rains for six days and six nights and flooded the known world that man inhabited. And the water subsided and the, the ship came to rest on Mount Nisser there. And on the seventh day, Utnapishtim sends out a dove. But it comes back because it couldn't find any resting place. Then he sends out a swallow the next day. And a swallow comes back because it couldn't find a resting place. Then he releases a raven that never returned. And he realizes that raven has found dry ground. Oh, after coming to rest upon the mountain, he disembarks and offers a sacrifice to the gods. And for his deed of obeying the gods, Utnapishtim is granted the gift of immortality. And Gilgamesh says, well, how can I get that to an Utnapishtim? Says, to abandon the quest for eternal life and live a contented and happy life as a mortal human being. It would be better off for you. Okay, and that's the story of the Gilgamesh epic. Now, the parallels to the biblical account are just uncanny, aren't they? You got a flood that results from the man's disobedience to the gods. You got a hero warned of the coming disaster. The hero builds a huge ship and brings the living things aboard. The flood kills everyone except the people on the ship. You have a flood that lasts uh, six days, six nights. Birds are sent out to check out the conditions of the earth. The ship lands on a mountain. Sacrifice is made to the gods by the hero, and there's the promise of no more future floods. How uncanny is that? Pretty close huh, to the biblical account of the flood. How do we get that? How did we get that? The Sumerians' king's list, which is also about 3rd millennium B.C., talks about you know, kings of the Sumerian culture, and, all, and it also mentions about a worldwide flood. How do we explain all this? Whatever has to be, must have a cause. What, what is the cause? Could it be that there was indeed a massive flood that either covered the entire earth or the known earth at that time which would be the Middle East and the Levant there. Very likely, that's probably where it comes from. Okay? So the flood account, uh, is a, it's reasonable to believe in Noah and the flood account. What about the Tower of Babel, which many say that, well, this is pure fiction. There's good reason to believe that perhaps this is a historic account. Throughout the Mesopotamia region, especially in Iraq, we have ziggurat towers okay these are very high towers here there are over 30 ziggurat remains throughout the mesopotamian region okay these are ancient temples this is the ancient temple of one of the oldest and most massive we found the eridu ziggurat there that's the reconstruction there ziggurat i remember when i was in dallas and my friend invited me to his church and uh, of course he's an old testament major 
And I said, hey, any visitors today? And he stood up and he said, this is my friend from Hawaii, Pat Ziggurat, you know. I said, hey, thanks a lot, buddy. Pat Pagan Temple, you know, hey, thanks a lot. Okay, so these are throughout the Middle East, and these were massive, massive temples. This is the famous remains of the ziggurat at Ur-Namu, in the land of Ur, where Abraham is from. Okay, that's how it looked in ancient times. They've done some reconstruction on it. It's dedicated to the moon god, Nana, and this structure arose over 200 feet high. Okay, over 20 stories here. Now, the building materials in Genesis 11 says they built a tower using burnt bricks and bitumen for mortar. They are in Genesis 11, verse 3. That made the bricks stronger so they could build higher towers. Well, we know that the ziggurats during the 8th century BC, okay, the Chalcolithic period and, and before, Neolithic period, about 8000 BC and before, were built with baked bricks, made them very strong. However, from the 4th century BC, this is the Chalcolithic period, okay, during the time of the Tower of Babel, about 3000 BC, right around there, mid 3000 BC, they started using fire-baked bricks okay, with bitumen or tar. And here's one right there that they discovered in that era, fired brick at some of the ziggurats there that came up in the 4th century BC. And they're not sun-dried bricks. These are fired bricks covered in tar or bitumen there, as the Bible described. And they could make the building and the construction much, much stronger. Fired bricks, as you know, those of you in pottery or ceramics know, are much stronger than sun-baked bricks. And that's what many of these ziggurats, these taller ones, are built on. Now, remember the story of the Tower of Babel. Everybody spoke one language. All right? And then he said, hey, we're going to build a temple up to the sky over here. Okay? And then God saw the arrogance of man and judged mankind, confused their languages, and they ended up spreading throughout the Middle East. Well, there's a story here, the legend of N. Merker and Lord Arata, dated about 2100 B.C. And the story features two kings here, N. Merker, who ruled the land of Uruk, and King Arata, who ruled the land east of Uruk. Both men were in love with a goddess named Inanna. Now, King N. Merker, they both fall in love, but King N. Merker wins the heart of the goddess Inanna because he's willing to build a grand temple for her, right? And so he seeks to subdue the other lover there in this love triangle, Lord Aratha. And the two kings engage in intellectual battle here to win the heart of Inanna. She already loves King N. Merker, but Lord Aratha doesn't know that, all right? So he still thinks he's got a chance. So they're battling this epic intellectual battle here. During the portion of the epic, okay, N. Merker recites the spell of Nudinmud. And in the spell that he's reciting over Lord Arata, he speaks of a time when the world was of one language. He says, once upon a time there was no snake, no scorpion, there was no hyena, no lion, there was no wild dog, no wolf, there was no fear, no terror. Man had no rival. In those days, the lands of Suber and Hamadzi 
Harmony, Tongue, Sumer, the great land, the decrees of friendship, Uri, the land having all that is appropriate, the land of Martu resting in security, the whole universe, the people in unison, to Enlil in one tongue or one language. And then goes on to say, Then Enki, Lord of abundance, whose commands are trustworthy, Lord of wisdom, who understands the land, the leader of the gods, endowed with wisdom, the Lord Eridu, changed the speech in their mouths, brought contention into it, into the speech of man that until then had been one. This legend coming in the 2100 BC speaks of a time when the entire land spoke in one language. Where in the world does that come from? We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. So if you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or even hold an apologetics conference at your church or location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Be sure to use our search engine for available resources. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share it with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the Air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, once again, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log in at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharak. Evidence and Answers.